Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that introduces you to some of the top talent in the world of cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to No Password Required, a podcast dedicated to exploring the minds and personalities that make up the field of cybersecurity. I'm your host, Ernie Ferraresso, and with me, as always, Jack Clabby, a cybersecurity attorney at Carlton Fields, PA, in Tampa, and Pablo Torres, a senior cloud security engineer at Second Watch. On the podcast today, we'll chat with Vice Admiral Mike McConnell, the former director of the National Security Agency and current executive director at Cyber Florida. Vice Admiral McConnell's career spans over 50 years, focused on international and foreign intelligence issues, including 29 years as a U.S. Navy intelligence officer. In 2007, he became the second U.S. Director of National Intelligence, serving under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Admiral McConnell, we look forward to a great conversation. But first, hello to my co-hosts, Jack and Pablo. Gentlemen, hello. Ernie, hey, uh, I just want a quick note, program note here that I've joined you in August Company as owning now a pair of cowboy boots. I had a trip out to Nashville, picked up a pair of cowboy boots, and, uh, you know, I now I understand why you've been so happy all along. I, I got to tell you, cowboy boots are one of those points in time in a person's life. It's it, it it can go either way, and I'm glad that you 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 chose the right path. Um, I gotta say, I need to catch up. I need to get my first first pair of cowboy boots. I have a cowboy hat, but uh, once I match up, Ernie, I think I might live in your in your in your image, and I might get some gator skins. You know, Florida boy. Well, I think you could. That would be good. And, and uh, you know that that being in Florida, that's I think that fits. Uh, and and Pablo, you you you're young because it. And Jack, I think you can attest to that. You have to you have to be at a point in your life, because otherwise it's just a fad. But you get to a point in your life where you commit to it. You're it's a commitment. When the person is ready, the boots will come. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's yeah. right. That's right. You don't need to plan for it. What, what is so, it? It's like it's like Harry Potter. The uh, right. the, the the boots choose the wear. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I mean, I think I, th- something like this hasn't happened. I've been telling everyone I meet, like it's just strangers in the street, people in elevators. Uh, it's like the joy, the kind of pure joy, like when you're a kid again, when you, I don't know, you get a cool baseball card or something. It, it feels good to talk about. <laughs> now, got, the other thing we got, which is maybe cool, is we got a federal cybersecurity law, sort of. Um, you know, it's it's not the equivalent of cowboy boots. It might be the equivalent of like, a picture of cowboy boots, mm. but it's still something that's like kind of fun to have and you didn't have it before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we have the Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act, which passed back in, in March, and a little bit of that has been flushed out and there's been a good conversation about it. So just talk for a few minutes about who that applies to and, and, and what we should expect over the next couple months and years with it. Um, it is uh, – it's not everything. It really focuses on both federal government contractors – and it focuses on critical infrastructure. Uh, but the, the sort of core pieces of it, right, the, the sort of first piece of it that I think is pretty fascinating is that, one, it's going to direct some federal agencies to modernize their information security practices. That's the first big bullet. Not a lot of public conversation about that, but I think that's a good thing in the bulk of the work. The second is that it's going to impose incident handling and reporting requirements on federal contractors. And that's important. We've already had a lot of questions from clients about this, but folks are going to have to puzzle out 
everybody knows what a federal prime contractor is. But what about subcontractors? Mm. And then what about vendors for subcontractors? And what about vendors for subcontractors who don't touch federal stuff? So they're a little unclear about that. Um, then the third thing, which again is not as exciting, is there's like this new legislative framework around FedRAMP, which is sort of the cloud cybersecurity guidance for government contractors. The last piece that is getting a lot of play, which I think is going to be the best, the most kind of most exciting part, is going to be, you know, critical infrastructure operators, so private sector folks in critical infrastructure space. They now have to report to CISA, CISA, substantial cybersecurity incidents within 72 hours, ransomware payments within 24 hours, and sort of other information on an ongoing basis within a critical time. So it takes CISA, which was like the agency that was supposed to be helping, turns it a little bit into the information clearinghouse that I think folks thought it was going to be, and puts these deadlines on when you're going to have to report. But to me, it, you know, what is critical infrastructure? That's the most challenging part. Yeah. There's a list it's in the Policy Directive 21, which I think a lot of folks listen, but it's got chemicals manufacturers on there. It's got dams. Yeah, transportation is in there. I want to say yeah. agriculture. Some agriculture stuff yeah. is in there too. Food and agriculture. Yeah. So, so is that like like I work at a restaurant? Is it food and agriculture, uh, or is it I'm involved in the? Am I a farmer? Yeah, Publix. You have to be a farmer of a certain size. Uh, is it Publix? I mean, you're providing food, right? You, yeah. But you get. I like. I'm comfortable with nuclear reactors being on there. Yeah. I get a little more challenging when we talk about, um, you know, chemicals. Like you know, every any, anyone who makes anything is making a chemical at some point. Yeah. So what's going to happen is I think there's 18 months. There's like an 18 month trigger, then a 24 month trigger for um, CISA to actually publish rules for notice and comment to the public about what are going to be these definitions, who's going to be included. I mean, it's got financial services in there. You know, there's big time banks that do international wire transfers, and then there's community banks. Mm -hmm. What's a financial sector? Um, what about, you know, the guy who makes, you know, who, who makes loans in suburban Philadelphia? Yeah. Oh. Right? Like, the, the, you know, the person who, um, you know, who Rocky Balboa worked for the beginning of Rocky. That's right. Uh, Is that a financial services sector? So I, I, would, I would think so. I mean, that's just me because, I mean – but you talk about it when he talks about the security aspect of it. I mean, he did have that's right. the future heavyweight champion of the world um, ensuring that his organization was wired tight. So, uh, you know, he probably was already in compliance. Because if one, if the, somebody that's who right. strikes me as a, uh, a cybersecurity aware and concerned person, it's it's Rocky Balboa. Because it, it, I mean, just example, he knows the threats from inside the United Clubber Lang, right? That's right. That's right. And he also understands a nation state actor. Let's go, Ivan Drago. I mean, come on, this right. guy he covers the whole covers the waterfront. So. But I think I think that the takeaways from this are going to be, I, I'm interested in getting some clarity from the rulemaking on, yeah. you know, who who is in fact covered by this rule. Um, you know, I think there was some worry that that if it was overly, uh, if too many entities were there, it would sort of, it was meant for critical infrastructure, not meant for mom and pop, yeah, um, business. And then two, you know, if you report to CISA about a substantial cybersecurity incident, are they going to just hand it over to the Department of Justice or not? And there was some squabbling on the part of the Department of Justice when, when this was getting passed about whether they would see everything or just things that CISA decided to send to them. And, and I think where it ends up is, is CISA can share but doesn't have to yeah. share. So I think some clarity around you know, whether every time there's, a, there's a, an event, uh, a, 
a participant in the critical infrastructure is going to be seen as a victim, which I think probably should be the default position, or whether they're going to be seen as someone who needs to be investigated by the FBI, which I think is probably not where the yeah. law should be. And We're trying to encourage things. Along those same lines, uh, do you think um, there would be something – is there something included that would uh, protect the the companies from subsequent civil litigation that might, might go against that? Or is that – I mean, of course, I just said civil litigation as if I, I completely understand that. Remember, I'm I'm not. You're the attorney here, man. I'm I'm just the. I just I just watch Judge Judy. So, um. yeah, I mean, there's there's some protections in there. I think they they realized that forcing these sorts of reporting to CISA for the purposes of information sharing yeah. is very different from having to go make notice to the customers of any individual business whose data might be at issue, which is covered by state law. So this is an additional reporting requirement for businesses that will be protected or or should be protected in the language um, from disclosure under FOIA requests. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, they have the ability, you know, the CISA may provide this to the DOJ, which isn't fantastic news if if you're trying to report as a victim. On the other hand, you know, there's some protections there from the ability of it to be used against you in a civil action. Yeah. Solely, or um, for it to be accessible uh, from a FOIA request, but I think a lot of that's going to have to be litigated. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I mean, as, as clear as those protections are, I think there's going to need there, there always is going to be folks who test that. So we're going to have to keep an eye on that. But it really, I think the two areas to, to watch are going to be the rulemaking from Homeland Security from CISA on what is really going to be covered um, as a covered entity, and then second, similarly, like. If you're, I get it, if you're a prime contractor to a federal government, you need to have your security squared away the way they want you to. Um, but if you're a subcontractor, and then if you do business with a subcontractor, could you be covered by this and, and what would cover for you? So it's not that the federal law that I think everyone was still hoping for was something that, that makes and unifies the 50 state reporting requirements or helps with some privacy aspects among the 50 states. This isn't that. This is another thing that big businesses are going to have to be concerned about in addition to the stuff that's already on their plate. But if you're in the business of helping companies get cyber ready and you do work with companies that are, um, or you work for a company that is a government prime contractor, you know, again, it's the full employment act, Ernie and, and Pablo. Yeah. It's, yep. if, you're a, if you're a student listening to this and you're not sure to hit press, press play on the, on the cybersecurity major, give some thought to it because – you know, we're, we're building an infrastructure here to, to be risk-based cybersecurity resilience. Uh, and if this if this takes off the way that I think a lot of people hope it does, this may become the standard for all industry, not just critical infrastructure. That, that's well said, Jack. And uh, we're thinking about long-term longevity here. Um, would you say that it's more important to have, I want to say, speed with the information that's being relayed from CISA or to have some sort of consistency when it comes to the documentation? Um, and, and I want to preface that because I want to say that in the last year, 56% of energy utility facilities have reported at least one sort of data breach or one sort of operation shutdown. So what, what comes with that? I mean, would you rather have speed as far as conveying information to other facilities or would you rather have depth with your documentation process? Yeah, it's true. You can, you can have poor information quickly or good information later and you can't have both. Right. So- Right. So it's really that that is a problem. So when CISA puts the rulemaking out, it's supposed to propose um, the format in which this information will come. So there is supposed to be some rails and guidance on what to do here. But um, 
you know, for energy, the energy sector right now has a reporting requirement. Mm. So if you're in the sort of FERC-NERC world, so if you're sort of a heavily regulated energy company, for certain types of incidents, you make centralized reporting within an hour. Yeah. Right. So for some of the, if you're a real energy company and you're in that system already, for you, this isn't that big of a deal. Um, but if you're a, if you're a dam and you're not in the FERC and NERC, or if you're a financial services company uh, and you're unclear, this is going to be brand new for you. And some are going to, you know, some are going to follow it to the letter and some won't. And there's a lot of weight that's going to be put on the word substantial. I mean, a big bank, a global bank has dozens a day. Like, so does CISA really want to get a dozen reports a day or, or four dozen reports a day from a big bank of every little ping? No, yeah. they don't. Clearly, there's going to be some threshold set, but you need the threshold blessed. And is CISA going to have people you can call and ask questions? Or is it going to be like an IRS type situation where you get in the line and four hours later, you get a callback? So I, it's one thing to, to, to put mandates in there for American business. It's another thing to then really staff these organizations in a way that they can use it. And What's going to happen? Is this going to be a, a database to nowhere, or is this going to be a database mm. that's really going to be used? Because we've seen the F, the you know like the FS ISAC in some of the bigger centralized reporting, and they're only as good as the inputs. And then you have all the inputs all day long. If nobody's doesn't. on the other end taking things out of it, um, that doesn't help either. And so you know there are ISACs that are more active than others. Uh, so. It's exciting, I, but but like you've said before, Pablo, like I still think that the place where the really smart people are going is going to be Reddit, right? Like, I, <laughs> hey, no names attached to this. We're seeing some weird stuff coming out of Eastern Europe. Lockdown, you know, this or that. So, no, I mean it's fascinating. Reddit, Reddit is definitely a treasure trove of information. Um, for for our audience out there, just to kind of put a dollar value on it, let's keep in mind that Solar Winds, which exposed over eighteen thousand pieces of critical private and uh, government data, it's going to cost an average of a hundred and like a hundred billion dollars to recover from <laughs> that. That's just an average. So um, with whatever information we're reporting uh, to CISA, to FSISAC, to, to all of those intelligence communities, um, but let's do it in a timely fashion. So the people on the ground can go ahead and <laughs> make sure we're not costing our clients a hundred billion dollars. I think I, I like the idea of centralized. If, if you're going to require a report, provide immunity on the other end of it. And I think, I think if that's where this is headed, I'm okay with that. I think we'll give you a quick and dirty report. It may not be perfect. It may have some stuff that's wrong in there. We're not going to fully vet it, but don't hold me to that. I might change my opinion, right? I might change that reporting. I think that's where, I think if the world's headed towards do your best, this is just kind of like open intelligence. Yeah, this happened to us. Um, but anytime it's published, take our name off it. You know, I think if you have immunity and that's the handshake that comes from needing rapid reporting, I think you, that's a regime that can work. It doesn't mean that later on, right? If you, if the company's done something wrong, the FBI can't investigate and figure something out. But in, if you want it done quickly, you've got to put protections in there because otherwise it's, you know, I don't know how you do it. Hey, I'll, do it. I'll say this much uh, from, from boots on the ground perspective, uh, CISA has definitely stepped up. I mean, we're, we're cycling through their information every single day for all of our clients and their vulnerabilities. So this is putting out some very good information um, that's helping us maintain overall integrity for, for the servers and the infrastructures that we monitor. That's great. And that was the, that was the original design for it. It was a mm -hmm. non-law enforcement, non-law enforcement um, information repository for exactly what you're using it for, Pablo. And the, the weird part is if the laws start to make it to be information gathering for law enforcement, then I think people are going to be, you're going to have 
non-compliance in a place where what you really need is is the best information you can get quickly. Yeah. Well, that's going to be interesting to see where this goes, and we follow this uh, the evolution of this law out into the future. Uh, but that said, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to go travel back in time and learn a little bit about the uh, exciting uh, history of of uh, cybersecurity. And when we talk to uh, Vice Admiral Mike McConnell and a little bit about how his life of service led to certainly a multitude of different careers and and uh, and run-ins with some really interesting people. So stick around. Looking for more no password required content? Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at No Password Pod. All right, welcome back. Our guest today is Vice Admiral Mike McConnell, a two-time recipient of the nation's highest award for service in the intelligence community, once by President Clinton and the second by President George W. Bush. Admiral McConnell, welcome to the podcast, No Password Required, sir. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to join you. Well, sir, I know that you uh, clearly with the, the title Admiral that you were in the Navy um, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, you got out of, you, you know, you, you, where you came from and, you know, you ended up in the Navy and then mm-hmm. now you are in Virginia. I mean, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of ground to cover, a lot of water to put, put it in naval parlance. Um, uh, how did that, how did that start? Well, first of all, there are admirals in the Coast Guard, so oh. you made an assumption up front, but uh, you're correct. <laughs> I did uh, join the Navy. I graduated from college, small university in South Carolina, Furman University, in 1966. And if you recall, there was a little conflict going on referred to as Vietnam. And so I was, uh, I had been married uh, my senior year. Uh, But when I graduated, I was now eligible for the draft. We had a draft in those days. And uh, I said, you know, my dad served in World War II. My uncle served in Korea. It's probably um, appropriate for me to serve my country in a similar way. So I decided to join the Air Force or the Navy. I thought about the two and decided, you know, I prefer the Navy. So I went down and took the test for the Air Force and the Navy and qualified for each. And then um, uh, the Navy came back and said accepted. So I went off to officer candidate school in November, 1966. And, uh, as they say, 90 day wonder, uh, I was commissioned an ensign after that. Now my class was small. The class ahead of us was 1200 cadets and my class was only 126. Uh, when I was accepted, I was a little worried because, uh, uh, 120, five of them had master's degrees and I did not. So I was wondering how I was going to fare. Uh, but it turned out well. I, I got through. I was commissioned, and two of us in that graduating class were assigned to the Mobile Riverine Force uh, in the Mekong Delta, and uh, we both were damage control assistants, uh, small ships. Uh, they were originally built as barrack ships, and so they were converted to embark the the Ninth Infantry. We had Navy support with uh, river patrol boats and uh, also some devices back in those days called Monitor and Merrimack. Uh, one was to deliver troops and the other was uh, uh, was armed with weapons to support the troops. So 
we would move up and down the Mekong Delta from the South China Sea all the way up to near Cambodia and just uh, take the army uh, where the they were needed. And uh, in those days, of course, we went through the Tet Offensive in that time. I was there 67, 68. And uh, we were credited, or our group, the Mobile River Reinforce, was credited with preventing the Viet Cong from taking over the southern region. But as you know, um, uh, that uh, war played out. We eventually uh, departed in 1973, uh, strong resistance in the country in support of the Vietnam War. Uh, so I had done my tour in, in Vietnam. You normally served a year. And uh, my second assignment was to the Naval Criminal Investigative Force, uh, uh, Naval Criminal Investigative Service, I think it's referred to as NCIS, popular TV show. Uh, what I was going to say, yeah. It wasn't exactly the way it was portrayed on television, but <laughs> we we did uh, have a, a counterintelligence operation. Uh, we were trying to penetrate a defector aid group. And uh, the idea was we would dangle a pseudo defector. And once the defector aid group uh, made contact, uh, they would move him or her, in this case, him, uh, through all throughout Japan. Uh, and so our purpose was to identify the members and safe houses and that sort of thing. So after this was, I reported for duty and uh, I said, they said, welcome, we're glad you're here. So I'm glad to be here. And they said, well, good, you got the duty tonight. And I said, for what? <laughs> they put the monitor for this youngster who is uh, being ferried around Japan. So long story short, um, they were taking this uh, young man, a hospital corpsman, uh, out to meet a Soviet trawler up in the northern island of Japan in Hokkaido. And uh, we call the operation off as he was waiting out into the surf to be picked up by the Soviets. That, what they were doing in those days, they went to the Soviet Union, um, made public statements, and then they would move on to, to Sweden as a protest against the war. So we penetrated that group and uh, effectively uh, made them um, no longer up no longer functioning. And uh, then I served uh, two years in, uh, in Japan in the Naval Criminal Investigative um, uh, Service. And the person I worked for was an intelligence officer. And he kept teasing me that although I was teared, uh, cleared for top secret, I didn't really know about the intelligence community. There was something special and uh, he kept allowing me to peek in that window. And in those days, I said, well, I did my duty. I served. Um, I, I'm planning on getting out and going back to my hometown of Greenville, South Carolina. And he said, well, if you're going to do that, you should go to uh, intelligence school and stay in the reserves. And so I said, all right, I'll, I'll do that. That would be something of interest to me. So at the last moment, I applied to intelligence school. Uh, it was conducted by the Defense Intelligence Agency in Washington. And uh, of course the class was full when I applied, but they had a unexpected cancellation. It's funny how your life turns on uh, small events, but uh, with the cancellation, I was allowed in. So it was quick uh, pack out, moved to Washington, DC. And I attended uh, intelligence school for a year. And that's when I learned 
uh, about the real intelligence community. For the first time in the history of the school, they taught it at what's called SITK. That stands for Special Intelligence um, Talent Keyhole. That's a special clearance in the intelligence community. And uh, I was fascinated. I had never um, been exposed to that sort of thing. And uh, at, upon graduation, I was si assigned to something called the Undersea Warfare Plot. That was a position in the Pentagon where the small group of um, officers had responsibility for overwatch for sensitive um, US Navy submarine operations and also sensitive operations between the Navy and, and the CIA. And so uh, I was, uh, as the saying goes, in hog heaven, because I, <laughs> I was in something I had never understood or been aware of, and it was very, very exciting. Uh, so as young Navy lieutenant, and there were, we had one lieutenant commander and, and uh, five lieutenants, we stood watch um, 724, uh, for overwatch to ensure the safety and security of uh, submarine operations conducting uh, surveillance operations and uh, coordinated with the CIA and some of their uh, sensitive operations. And I served in that tour for um, uh, three and a half years, uh, eventually became a big, being named the, the uh, supervisor of the undersea warfare plot. And I had found my niche. I decided uh, I was become a, uh, an expert in Soviet submarine operations and how to counter them. And if you'll recall, um, in my high school days, we had gone through the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And the significance of the Cuban Missile Crisis was that the Soviets put um, ballistic missiles with nuclear weapons in Cuba and the flight time from Cuba to the United States to Washington was less than eight minutes. And what that meant was uh, they were inside our decision process for our deterrent called uh, MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. As long as we could uh, assure destruction of them, then they were deterred from launching anything against us. Uh, President Kennedy was going through the dilemma of uh, how to force the Soviets to take the missiles out of Cuba and it decided on a naval blockade. So when I was in intelligence school, it was to relive that whole process. How did we know? How did we find the missiles? How did we um, monitor what was going on? How did the Navy do a blockade and so on? So now here, here we are years later and I'm in the undersea warfare plot and the Soviet answer to being forced to take the missiles out of Cuba was to put ballistic missile submarines off Norfolk. And lo and behold, the flight time from launch to Washington, D.C. was less than eight minutes. So it was a, a huge issue for the Navy. How would you hold those submarines at risk? And that's when I decided, hmm, this is the number one priority of the Navy. And if I'm going to be useful and valuable in the Navy, if I can um, master the process for knowing all the sensors and methods and processes and so on to hold those submarines at risk by knowing where they are, what their command and control was, what, how did they operate, uh, then it would be uh, a potentially rewarding career that I could move through the system. So 
that's how I got into naval intelligence and what I focused on. And it, it paid off time and time again as I went through my career. I apologize for the long story, but uh, I'm reminiscing of uh, uh, time years ago. Uh, uh, now I've been retired since 1996. And although we supported in the private sector, the U.S. intelligence community, uh, it wasn't quite as exciting as those days when I was uh, the, the duty analyst uh, telling uh, admirals and generals, uh, chairman of the Joint Staff, or the National Security Advisor, what the Soviets were up to with their uh, with the uh, uh, Soviet submarine operations uh, off Norfolk and later off uh, co- the west coast of uh, the United States. No need to apologize. I mean, this you know, this is like the real life hunt for Red October type stuff. So this is <laughs> uh, well, Ernie. Uh, just a sidebar uh, because of what I knew, what I'd been exposed to. And uh, Hunt for Red October was so close to the real operations that if I had written that book, uh, I would have been uh, sent to prison because <laughs> it had so much information. It was so sensitive. Uh, so uh, Tom Clancy, of course, wrote the book and became famous from that. But uh, it was always amazing to me that, that an author could do that kind of research and be that close. Uh, and so, of course, I was living in a top secret classified world in a vault, and uh, we didn't share any of those uh, uh, secrets or those uh, any of that information with anyone. So I was really surprised when the book came out. And I always joked, uh, goodness, great book. I really enjoyed it. But if I'd written it, I'd have put me in prison. You talk about your first retirement in 1996. What were you doing in the mid-90s sort of leading up to that first retirement? Well, the, the Navy career was uh, incredibly exciting. I, I had a, a tour in the Persian Gulf in a little island called Bahrain. It was a force there called Commander Middle East Force. It was a flagship, and then destroyers rotated in and out, in and out uh, over time. If you recall, after World War II, the British made a decision to um, move uh, everything east of Suez back. And if you if you look at naval history, uh, because of the Industrial Revolution and what the, the British were able to do in, with naval ships, um, a significant portion of the world was a British lake. If you think about uh, the British Navy and where it took uh, the British Empire, uh, South Africa was British, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, Sudan, Egypt, um, in those days, um, uh, what we currently call Israel, uh, the Palestinians, uh, Saudi, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, what we now call Bangladesh, Burma, Malaysia, all the way down to Singapore, all the way even around to, to include Hawaii. And so when the British pulled out, the Navy the U.S. Navy wanted to have a presence, so we created Middle East Force, and so I was assigned to that force as a Navy lieutenant. And uh, we mostly uh, showed the flag. Um, we visited uh, Sri Lanka and Pakistan and Saudi and Kenya and, and uh, uh, Sudan and Jordan and so on. And so it, it gave me an appreciation for the region and the culture and the history and so that was just a point in time. Um, 
uh, from that, I, I was assigned to a intelligence support operation in Rota, Spain, where our mission was to take care of Sixth Fleet. So we became ex- expert in not only Soviet submarine operations, but so- Soviet anti-carrier operations. And that was a great learning experience. We we're housed in a uh, an NSA um, signals intelligence station located in Rota. And we, we were uh, monitoring all source information, signal intelligence, uh, overhead photography, um, um, electronic intelligence, uh, human intelligence, uh, photography, anything, to be able to stay ahead of what the Soviets were doing and how they might hold carriers or other assets at risk. And uh, so Mideast four for a couple of years, then three years in Spain, then back to the Pentagon. And uh, I got to be in a, a special group doing uh, some in-depth analysis. And then from there, I was assigned to uh, Hawaii to the commander in chief of the Pacific fleet, where we run similar operations against the Soviet Navy, the SSBN force, the uh, ballistic missile carrying ships. Also the, the uh, Soviet forces uh, in the Pacific and down the South China Sea and over the Indian Ocean. And uh, from there, I was assigned as the intelligence officer for the Seventh Fleet. If you understand Navy, the numbered fleets are the are the fighting force. Six fleets in the Mediterranean. Second Fleet in those days was the U.S. East Coast. Third Fleet, the U.S. West Coast, and Seventh Fleet uh, went from Hawaii all the way to to uh, Africa. So huge operating area, yeah. and we interacted with the with the Soviets uh, quite a bit. Uh, so from there, uh, War College, I was the executive assistant to the director of naval intelligence for a year, and then reassigned back to Hawaii as the intelligence officer for the for the Pacific Fleet. When I was there the first time, I was a, an analyst running a uh, an a, uh, analytical corps. When I went back, I was the uh, senior intelligence officer for the Pacific Fleet. And fortunately for me, uh, we were very successful in our counter submarine operations. And uh, the commander of the Pacific Fleet um, sat on the flag selection board of all things. And lo and behold, <laughs> when you, miracle of miracles, uh, he selected me for uh, Rear Admiral. And then he was reassigned to the Joint Staff as the uh, Vice Chief of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, uh, he recommended General Colin Powell that uh, – take a look at this kid McConnell and I was brand new. I'd been selected for flag, but I hadn't put it on yet. <laughs> and uh, general Powell interviewed about five or six of us. And for whatever reason, he chose me. So uh, I reported for duty and five days later, the Iraqis invaded Kuwait. Oh my goodness. So all of a sudden uh, <laughs> I'm in a ground war. I knew a lot about submarines. I didn't know anything about, <laughs> about ground. War. And, uh, so I found myself in the Oval Office and up at Camp David and down at uh, McDill as the briefer for what was going on. So I fa- it was a pretty challenging time. Um, when it started, I didn't know a, a battalion from a brigade, so it was a fast learning experience. Uh, so anyway, we went through the uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and we accomplished what we were after. And... Uh, I'd been briefing the secretary of defense on a regular basis. And what I realized was army guys are challenged to speak English. If the, 
if the secretary said how many troops in the Republican Guard uh, division, uh, they would say uh, three maneuver brigades. But that didn't mean anything as Secretary of Defense because he wasn't <laughs> he didn't have military background either. So how many people? Like, yes. Yeah, how many human right. beings is that? Yeah. He would ask the question and, and the army guy would say three maneuver brigades. And I'd lean over him and say, sir, that's 11,000 troops in that particular division. <laughs> and and he just liked the way I, I was speaking English because what I would do and I'd see him on TV at, at night and he was uh, briefing the public with what I was telling him, not what the army guys were telling him. So anyway, long story short, um, we, we moved uh, the equivalent of Richmond, Virginia, uh, from the United States to the Saudi desert, uh, every building, stoplight, stop sign, everything. And then we did desert storm and, uh, it was 40 days. We completely, uh, destroyed the Iraqi military and pushed the Iraqis out of Kuwait, which was the mission. There's some interesting stories there. I won't go into them now, but the secretary, uh, when it came time to pick a new, uh, director of the national security agency said, uh, what about McConnell? And, uh, his staff said, oh, so you can't do that. He said, why? He said, well, you know, he's a one-star. As a matter of fact, he's brand new. He's only been a one-star for nine months. And he said, well, you telling me I can't send him to NSA? And they said, no, sir, he's, he's a one-star. It's a three, three-star billet. He said, okay. And the next thing I know, uh, General Powell and the Secretary of Defense were pinning three stars on my shoulder. And <laughs> 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 the National Security Agency. So uh, I'm, I probably, I don't know if I was the youngest. I think I might have been. Uh, my background in... Uh, the academic world was uh, soft science. I was an economics major. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm sitting in one of the most technical agencies in the, in the federal government. And if you'll remember, uh, when I went in May of 1992, the Cold War was over. The Soviet Union collapsed in August of 1991. And so the attitude in the nation was uh, peace dividend. And what that means, peace dividend, is we want the money back. We don't need you guys anymore. So we had a global operation that had been designed to surround the Soviet Union from the Arctic to the Indian Ocean, from Germany to Japan, looking into denied territory. And uh, the consensus was we had a new administration. The Clinton administration had, had uh, been elected. And we're, we're going to have a different agenda, and we're not going to put as much effort and resources into um, the intelligence community that we once did. So what uh, the dilemma I had was, well, how do we, uh, this code-breaking thing, the NSA does, pretty important. If you, if you believe uh, what Winston Churchill said after World War II is code-breaking saved uh, 10 to 12 million lives and shortened the war by as uh, much as two years. Uh, remember, we were breaking Nazi Germany code uh, during World War II and reading the German field commander's orders before they did. And uh, between the U.S. Army and U.S. Navy, we were breaking Japanese code. And so we turned the battle in, in the Pacific by uh, uh, defeating a, 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 a Japanese armada at the Battle of Midway, uh, much larger and more capable than the U.S., but we surprised them. So code breaking was pretty important. So I'm, I know that history. And I'm saying, well, you know, sooner or later, we're going to need this stuff. So we need to think about how we're going to do it. So we, what we started to focus on was 
exploitation of networks. Uh, if you remember, the internet was exploding about this time and everybody was adopting that technology. And so uh, for me was, how would you do this in, in the sense of intelligence? And so what we found is if, uh, if you attack the network, getting the intelligence was very easy. Well, most people don't appreciate uh, NSA has two missions, not one. It's not only code breaking, it's also code making. So if we want to prevent an adversary from reading our communications, we have to be the best in the world at code making. And as I thought about this, uh, it changed my whole life uh, because what I started to understand is cybersecurity is is a strategic issue for the United States and particularly with businesses, uh, finance, and transportation and, and energy and uh, everybody quickly adapting this new technology without any regard for, for security. So I sort of started a one, one man campaign to go brief the president, the vice president and the senators and, and uh, Congress um, uh, members on the, on the house side and, Secretary of Defense and the Director of Central Intelligence said, hey, this is really important. We've got to improve our posture. Most of them said, what I, What are you talking about? And I had, I had a lot of difficulty communicating. Well, um, I was a three-star, and the Navy doesn't have any, um, at that, in those times, didn't have any three-star intel billets. Uh, so I had nowhere to go, so my time ran out. So I retired at just under 30 years. And I when I was making my plea for improved cybersecurity, one of the consulting uh, firms uh, had a member on the Defense Science Board, and I briefed the Defense Science Board. And uh, he said, you know, this kids he's he's got something here that may be a real payoff. So I was invited to join a, a privately held consulting firm as a partner. And my mission was to build a cybersecurity consulting practice. And uh, the, the firm I was in had a commercial entity, global, and a U.S. government-focused entity. So they sent me initially to do commercial. And I found the leadership of the commercial world was pretty much like the leadership on the government side when I was trying to make my case in the, in the early 90s. When you say security, uh, what they hear is uh, weight and time and burden and cost. Yeah. Security is a cost center, not a profit center. So uh, the commercial sector was not interested. Uh, so my, the leadership, the people I was working for, said, all right, uh, this will probably uh, come to fruition at some time. But for now, why don't you um, focus on the government sector? So we focused on Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, NSA, CIA, whatever. And they were the primary targets of uh, the U.S. adversaries. So we took a small business and built it into a large business uh, over the course of uh, the years I was there. It, we started at about $10 million in annual revenue. And when I retired in 2014, it was over a billion dollars in annual revenue doing cybersecurity consulting and cybersecurity practices and support for the, for the U.S. government. So uh, again, life changes on a on a small event and uh, I just happened to get picked to be the new director of the national security agency at a time when 
cybersecurity became so much of an issue and so important. And by going to the consulting company, I was able to become learn more and be more relevant to the, the debate and the dialogue. So that's what happened to me is my Navy career, joint staff, uh, intelligence officer, General Powell during the, during the first Gulf War. And then as a result of that, NSA, and then that's how I got into cybersecurity. As the, can you talk to us a little, little bit about how you got chosen for the uh, U.S. Director of National Intelligence and then, you know, what your role in that role, how cybersecurity, you know, was a part of, of what you were doing? The, um, I was asked to, uh, first of all, be the deputy director of national intelligence. And my, my good friend and mentor, uh, General Powell, was uh, upset with the administration. He had left after serving as secretary of state. And so when I was asked to be the deputy director, I, I gave him a call. And I said, uh, General uh, Mike McConnell, I've been asked to come in. He said, I, Mike, I wouldn't do it. He said, uh, uh, the, the department and the war is being driven by a couple personalities. Um, I, I don't think you would be able to do what you think's the right thing to do. So I recommend not do it. So, and so I told him, sorry, uh, I'm enjoying the private sector. So I'll, I'll pass. That was in July of, uh, 2006 in September, 2006, I got another call I said, okay, um, president's making some decisions about changing some personalities and we want to offer you the position of the director of national intelligence <laughs> if you can accept it today i said okay to knock it on the phone <laughs> yeah <laughs> general powell i said well let me think about it. i said how long do i have I said you, you uh, this was about nine in the morning i said uh how long do i have I said oh, we have to have an answer by three I said, okay, fine. So I, I cleared my schedule and I sat down. I said, I got to think my way through this. And I decided I called General Powell again. So I did. <laughs> and I said, General, I, I, I've been asked again now to be the director of National Intelligence. He said, Mike, don't do it. He <laughs> said, uh, you would be very, very frustrated. I know you would want to uh, try to work to improve the community. And uh, this is be, this, the, conflicts we're in right now by driven, being driven by the Pentagon. And so you would be frustrated. I'd say uh, my advice is don't do it. So I told him, no, I said, I, I'm just going to stay in the private sector. Well, we had an election in November, um, 2006. Uh, both houses went to the opposing party from the administration. The president made some pretty dramatic decisions. Uh, he fired the secretary of defense. He hired um, uh, Bob Gates, uh, the former director of Central Intelligence, uh, who had also served as uh, uh, deputy national security advisor and the, uh, uh, the, the leading um, uh, person in charge of analysis at uh, CIA. He was at that time he was uh, serving as a uh, president of the university. I think it was Texas A and M, and so uh, Gates. Uh, said yes and he came in as a new secretary of defense now they had tried gates to be the director of national intelligence and he had told him no and he wrote a little op-ed as to why he turned it down so uh, i said hmm what if i get a call again so it was in december my secretary came in and said mike i said yes she said the the vice president's on the phone for you 
I said, the vice president of what? She said, the United States. I said, oh, that vice president. Well, you know, you, oh, you mean that one? Oh, yeah. So I stood at attention and I said, uh, yes, sir, Mr. Vice President. He said, Mike, the president and I need you to come serve as the director of national intelligence. And I I said, oh, goodness. I said, uh, sir, we're, it's just about Christmas. I'm having a meeting with my family. This, I need this to be a family decision. Is it okay with you if I do have that discussion with my family? Then I'll call you back with, with an answer. He said, okay, that'd be fine. Well, if you ever want to talk to the Secretary of Defense, there's an organization in the Pentagon called Cables. So you call Cables, and if you if you uh, make your case, uh, they'll put you in touch with the Secretary of Defense. So I said, this is Mike McConnell. Uh, I used to be the director of the National Security Agency. I've been asked to be the director of National Intelligence. I need to talk to the Secretary of Defense. And they said, uh, wait one. He's taking off from Iraq, from Baghdad. He'll be airborne in uh, 14 minutes, and we'll put you on the phone. Wow. So I held the phone, and the voice said, hello, this is Bob Gates. I said, Mr. Secretary, Mike McConnell, I've been asked to be the director of national intelligence. He said, yep, I know. I said, you turned it down. He said, yep. <laughs> I said, <laughs> Well, you know that it doesn't have the standing and stature and authority of a cabinet officer. Um, the magic words in the federal government are direction, control, and authority. And the Secretary of Defense has direction, control, authority of everything in the Department of Defense. And if you think about it, uh, most of the intelligence capabilities uh, capability located in the Department of Defense, Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, the National Geospatial Agency, the National Security Agency. So what does the DNI do? He, well, he's supposed to coordinate. So I went through my dialogue. I said, Mr. Secretary, I can't do this job effectively unless you're totally supportive. He said, yep. I said, well, are you supportive of me? <laughs> he said, yep. I said, well, I guess I have my answer. So what I did was uh, sat down in my office and I took out a three by five card and I said, I'm going to write down on this three by five card, what I would do if I was a director of national intelligence. And I, first thing on the list was cybersecurity. Wow. The second thing was to redo the FISA law, FISA, F-I-S-A, uh, -S Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It was passed in 1978 after the Watergate um, fiasco. And then there's an executive order that runs the intelligence community. It's called Executive Order 12333. It had last been signed by President Reagan. So I said, all right, cybersecurity, uh, update the FISA law, redo 12333, integrate the community, get better control of uh, 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 collection tasking. And that those were my objectives. And so I called the vice president back and I said, Mr. Vice President, I'd be honored to serve. And uh, he said, uh, good, uh, go to Texas and meet the president. Wow. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. Uh, now I was expecting, you know, they'll fly me down there on Air Force One or something like that. Yeah. 
they said, no, no, you, you, you figure it out. Uh, <laughs> get, get a real car. And <laughs> well, he's down at his, he's down at his, uh, his ranch. You need to go down and meet him. I said, okay. So I turned to my secretary and I said, Hey, I got to go to the president's ranch. And she said, well, I can get you as close as Dallas. And then you got to get a rental car. So <laughs> if you go in and out of Dallas, you always have a weather problem. Mm-hmm. So especially summertime. Land, yep. Landed in Dallas and there's a tornado. So <laughs> oh my the goodness. hardest thing to do was to get a rental car come to give me a car. I finally got one. I don't know. And I'm not that familiar with Dallas, but it's, it's a concrete jungle. I mean, just getting in and out of there. Of course I didn't have GPS or anything like that. So I got a map. There's a tornado. It's raining. And so I finally figured out how to go uh, south to, to meet the president. And it was raining so hard that the rain stopped my windshield wipers. That's, that's <laughs> what kind of weather. I, so, so I finally get there and I had a phone number to call and he said, well, go to the local general store and wait. And so I did. <laughs> so a guy, hang out by the a guy showed up to pick up the truck. What? And he said, uh, first of all, lose the tie because uh, you know i'm going to meet the president i had a coat and tie on he said lose the tie so i took off my tie and, and now we started to, to the ranch and we drove i don't know maybe six or eight miles and we got on this dirt road and we we're going down to the, the president's ranch and all of a sudden the sky opened up sunshine came out the birds started singing <laughs> and we drove up and in the president's ranch, he's got a, a ranch house, and then there's a, a meeting house uh, when he meets with dignitaries or whatever is where he would be. And so we pull up, and the president's sitting on the porch with his dog, uh, wearing blue jeans and a vest. And uh, I got out of the truck, and the president said, Hello, Mike, come on in the house. And so we went in and uh, we had a delightful conversation. I said, uh, Mr. President, you know, I, I used to brief your dad back in the Gulf War, so I don't need a lot of time over in the White House. I really got a community I need to worry about. He said, son, you don't get it, do you? I said, excuse me? He said, uh, you've got no authority. You've got no uh, standing. He said, your only way to be effective is see me every day. If they think I'm supporting you, you can do what you got to do. I said, Mr. President, I think I'll be there every day. He said, damn right you'll be. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I want my briefing every morning at uh, 730, and you better plan on spending uh, at least 45 minutes every day with me. So I, that's how we started. Um and I went in, went through the confirmation, and I'm the new guy. And I, for the next two years, I saw the president every morning, uh, and and also a lot during the day. He was very active, as you know. Two conflicts: one in Afghanistan and one in Iraq. And he was uh, very hands-on and very focused on the global war on terrorism. And my community—I'll get a little esoteric here. Uh, Title Ten is how. The Department of Defense conducts its operations. That's the law that governs Department of Defense. Title 50 is how the U.S. intelligence community conducts its operations. 
um, a significant, almost all of the counterterrorism operation was being driven by Title 50. That's an intelligence operation. I just uh, put a finer point on it. When the U.S. Navy SEALs went into Pakistan and killed Osama bin Laden, they did that under Title 50, under the direction and command of the Director of Central Intelligence. So you can imagine um, how involved the president was on a day-to-day basis. So I, uh, I was in the Oval every morning with a briefing team, and it was, uh, it was an incredible adventure to go through that. And uh, in the course of it, um, we at one point wanted to get the president's per- permission to do offensive cyber. Now, to think about it this way for the audience that might be listening to this, uh, none of the military or the intelligence community will engage in anything that's offensive without the president's permission. And so uh, suicide bombers were wrecking havoc uh, in Iraq. And so we wanted to do offensive operations against their communication. So to do that, you have to have the president's permission. So we have a meeting in the Oval Office. This is now... March of 2007, and uh, in the meeting with Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, President, Vice President, National Security Advisor, White House Chief of Staff, uh, Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Chairman of Traveling, uh, Director of NSA, and me. And uh, the President said, all right, what do you got? And I said, well, we want to target the communications of the terrorists that are engaging in suicide bombing. And he said, what do you mean? So, well, we can, we can interfere with the communication. He said, damn right. Do it. Well, we had an hour reserved and we were at six minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing you learn, if you go in to make a sale and you make it, uh, the best thing to do is get up and leave because you don't want to talk yourself out of it. Yeah. So everybody sort of looked around and ready to go. We got what we came for. And I said, uh, I thought for maybe 10 seconds, I said, Mike, if you don't do this now, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. I said, Mr. President, he said, what is it? I said, uh, you know, we keep talking to you about two legs, but three legged stool. He said, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> I said, well, we took you out to NSA and showed you how we do signals intelligence. Yeah, yeah. You showed me about bots. I know about bots. I said, and we just asked you for offensive capability. And you said, yes. He said, yeah. Didn't you hear me? I said, we haven't talked to you about defense. So what do you mean? I said, Mr. President, if those 19 terrorists you hate so much who took down the World Trade Centers, if they had been cyber smart, they could have done greater economic damage to the United States and the globe by a, a focused cyber attack. The president said, what'd you say? And I repeated it. And then he looked at the secretary of treasury who happened to be also in the room. He said, Hank, Hank Paulson. He said, is that true? And Paulson sort of, he was sitting, leaning back on the sofa. He moved forward. And I had not coordinated with him. I, I didn't know what he was going to say. He said, yes, Mr. President, that's true. Our, our global clearing system is done through cyber means. And if somebody contaminated that or degraded it, uh, banking stops. And just to put that in context, the U.S. 
on gross domestic products about uh, twenty trillion dollars a year. But every day, every business day, uh, 13, 14, 15 trillion dollars has cleared the global banking system and half that's in New York City. And so now the president's angry because here's this new guy and I gave him a new problem and I didn't have a solution. And so he got up, walked around the room. He, he was obviously upset. And he turned around and looked at me and he said, McConnell, you brought that problem in here. And all the cabinet officers started moving away from me. They did not, oh, man. They did not want to get the splash. And he said, you brought that problem in here. You got 30 days. You go come back with a solution. What? And then he started out of the room. And we got about halfway out of the room. He stopped and came back and he looked at the cabinet officers and said, you guys don't understand this. He said, I don't care if it takes a Manhattan project. We're going to do what's necessary to secure this nation. And now all the cabinet officers start leaning back in my direction because what they heard was new money. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we formed a little task group, took us a little longer, 30 days, but we came back and said, Mr. President, we can make a difference, but it's going to be expensive. He said, how much? I said, $18 billion over five years. He said, how much are you putting in from your coffers? I said, $300 million. He said, you're serious. You really are serious. You really believe this. I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, all right, turn to the, uh, the secretary of the management budget and said, all right, figure it out. So they went off and came back and they said, all right, it's not 18 billion, it's 17.3 billion. And now by this time I had worked with the secretary of defense, secretary of state, secretary of Homeland security, secretary of treasury. We all kind of got it because I'd shared with them my point of view on how significant this was and they said all right now go commence the house and the senate to give you the money so now we spent countless hours on the hill trying to educate and we finally were able to make our case and they appropriated the money but it took time and we didn't get the money until uh september 2008 and if remember president um, Obama was elected in September or in November 2008 and we had a new administration so we had the money I had a chance because uh, the, the main candidates are, are responsibility of the director of national intelligence to brief them on the president day of briefing once they're candidates so they're they hit the ground running they're, they're not uh, deficient in their awareness or understanding when they when they're sworn in as new president so I made that case to Obama his response was, uh, Mike, I've been worried about losing this election, but after talking to you, I'm starting to worry about winning this election. <laughs> he said, this is that bad. Um, if I win, come see me, and let's talk about uh, what we need to do. And I said, yes, sir, I'll do that. Of course, he won the election. I went to see him, and he said, all right, I'm going to study this for 60 days. Um, I, I don't want to just endorse the what the pre previous administration had put in place, but if I'm convinced, then we'll we'll do the appropriate thing. And I, I said, I'm happy to support you any way I can. The team we had put into place to do this um, cybersecurity analysis was uh, still in place. And so that's the group was asked to look at this. And so they did. It took a little longer than the 60-day study, but 
Um, in May of 2009, uh, President Obama went to the Rose Garden and he said all the right things. It's that significant. We're going to do what we have to do. We're going to make major investments. We're going to address legislation and so on. Uh, unfortunately, uh, everyone in the globe uh, wants the time and attention and resources uh, managed by the President of the United States. Uh, we had a financial crisis that was taking its toll. Um, the President was focused on health care and all the various initiatives that he had. And um, so while he did this, the staff did the study and he understood it and he said the right thing, his attention was pulled in other directions. Let me try to capture what I mean by that. Um, the U.S. intelligence community has rules and, and regulations for classifying information. If you go back to World War II, uh, we were breaking Nazi Germany, Germany's uh, military communications code and the Japanese code. And that, as I had mentioned earlier, shortened uh, World War II by as much as uh, two years and probably saved 10 to 12 million lives. Code breaking was very important to the nation. And so the, the rules that came out of World War II uh, were put in place. They served us well in the Cold War, but we're in a new era. The issue today is that a potentially hostile foreign adversary can hold the U.S. at risk without penetrating geographic boundaries. And let me, let me try to put this in uh, context that uh, most people will relate to. If it's a physical threat to the United States, um, understanding that we've been protected for years by these great saltwater moats called the Atlantic and the Pacific, our whole process uh, for engagement is to engage over there, not over here. First time we had a, a major over here problem was, of course, Pearl Harbor in, in the early 40s and 9-11 uh, when the World Trade Centers were attacked. Um, so if it's a physical threat, we have resources and policy and regulation, procedure, and, and capability that we can respond to that threat and basically keep it at arm's length, whether it's a naval armada or airplanes or missiles or whatever it might be. So most people understand it as a physical threat, and they don't think very much about um, penetration of significant resources to damage or degrade through cyber means. A terrorist group in Pakistan with the right kind of uh, capability and training could do significant damage to the United States critical infrastructure. The intelligence community would be targeting that group, but what they do is classified. So think about it this way. We need to harness the U.S. capability, the federal government's capability, to uh, identify, find, locate, identify um, intent, malware capability. And we need to be able to provide that to the critical infrastructures at network speed. Not stop and debate about uh, complication or, or sanitizing sensitive information. The community is always, the U.S. intelligence community is always focused on protection of sources and methods. You don't want to lose a source or a method because it was compromised. It was known by the, by the potential adversary or adversary, potential adversary. So that's the way we have framed it. And so that's the way the community behaves. It's my view that we need to revisit roles and missions and authority 
and classification of information. So we recognize that a foreign threat could do significant damage inside the United States unless we harness all the capability of the the federal government, intelligence, law enforcement, and so on, um, the Homeland Security team, so that the information is obtained and then it flows through to protect the critical infrastructures at network speed. That's the the, the set of policies and the, the debate and policies and, and regulation that we're going to have to go through if we're going to significantly improve our cybersecurity posture uh, as a nation. Um, it's, it's change. Large bureaucracies hate change. Large bureaucracies often will choose failure over making the necessary change. There's long histories of that. So this is a huge undertaking to convince the public, the federal leaders, the state leaders, the owners and operators of the critical infrastructure of the significance of the threat and the dramatic changes that need need to be made so that we can uh, improve the cybersecurity posture of the nation. So that's a, a point of view, something I've been thinking about, engaged in for uh, many years now, and we still haven't made the necessary changes. We've made some. And the Congress has looked at the problem with the, uh, the Congressional Cyberspace Solarium um, Commission, and we're still looking at them. But we still haven't had that significant event that pushes us to the point of making great changes in how we uh, face and um, work against and share information uh, against the cyber threat. It is uh, – it's – it's a major change for us as a nation. And uh, as you know, democracies tend to be reactive, not proactive. So uh, it's, it's important, and we're not where we need to be there. I think of it as collective security, harnessing the capability of the federal government and all it can do for direct feed through and to and protection of the, of the critical infrastructure be that finance or transportation or energy or telecommunication, whatever it might be, since it can be damaged or, de- or degraded or exploited uh, from overseas without regard to physical boundaries, we need to change our thinking and our rules and our policy for uh, how we share that information with the, with the critical infrastructure in a way that they're adequately protected. So let me just stop there and uh, see if there are follow-on questions because uh, this is a major problem for the country. It takes significant change, and uh, we're not yet there to make the necessary changes that are required. Yeah, it seems like, too, Admiral, that you know there is the military response to it that's happening. There's an intelligence response that's happening. And then there's what the private sector is doing, both large banks, U.S.-based based banks, as well as the cybersecurity consulting companies themselves, some of which are really big at this point. And a lot of the coverage in the the war in Ukraine has been about U.S.-based, you know, uh, IT companies, information security companies providing intelligence that would normally have been provided by government actors, at least on the U.S. side. So there's there's more players than than I think would come to the table in a traditional warfare too. Many, many, many more players, and I, and it may be that the lessons learned in Ukraine might be the stimulus for us to make the, the necessary changes. Uh, the, 
it's transformational for society because of the impact of information technology. If you think about it, uh, when I was a youngster, if I was going to make a deposit, if I had my $3 to put in my savings account, I'd go to the bank and I'd have my little book and I'd give them my $3 and they would put it, stamp it in my book and initial it. That's the way banking was done. It was mostly physical transfer of money or assets or whatever. When the internet exploded and we had the ability to clear money, uh, it's 40 milliseconds from Tokyo to New York. A, a bank in Tokyo can notify a, a bank in New York, transfer $10 billion in 40 milliseconds in an exchange that says, I have uh, $10 billion to transfer. The bank in New York says, standing by. The bank in Tokyo says, I've sent it. The bank in New York said, here's your receipt. And all that transaction takes takes place, as I mentioned, in 40 milliseconds. That clearing system is vital to the continuation of banking. And uh, I think I may have mentioned earlier, but uh, in the event, uh, just to repeat so it's more broadly understood, our economy is $20 trillion, $21 trillion a year. It's called a gross domestic product. That's the the value of all goods and services produced in the United States in a year, 20, $21 trillion. Now, $13, 14 $15 trillion clears in the global banking system every business day. So if you could interfere with that, uh, degrade or destroy or, or somehow interfere with clearing of banking transactions, banking stops. Yep. If you think about it, uh, everything is measured in our society on the value of, of money. Um, a dollar bill is not inherently worth anything, except that the people who exchange a dollar bill are willing to accept it for the value that it represents. So uh, if it goes back to economics 101, you must have currency. Otherwise, you're in barter trade, trade uh, chickens for corn. Well, if you have a, a, a monetary system that everyone trusts and and uses as a reference, a standard, then uh, global commerce can, can function pretty smoothly. So uh, that, it, that's the area that's at risk, in addition to transportation and telecommunications and so on. So all that has to be protected much more adequately than is protected today. Well, thank you very much, um, Admiral McConnell. At this point, we're gonna take a short break. And when we return, uh, Ernie will present the Lifestyle Polygraph. So listeners, please stay with us. You're listening to the No Password Required Podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. All right. Welcome back, Admiral Connell. Are you ready for the Lifestyle Polygraph? Indeed, I am. I've been through many of them. I'm standing by. All right. As you know, this is used by the intelligence community to assess someone's uh, suitability uh, for access to the nation's most sensitive secrets. But here on No Password Required, we use it to probe the mind and the personalities of our guests. And the format is we have five questions, five questions that are kind of in a rapid fire format. Um, and the answers are meant to be quick and tight. And then we're going to run on to the next one. So here we go, sir, with question number one. Uh, are- just to make you aware, the last time I did a lifestyle polygraph, 
The polygrapher was from the National Security Agency. And when he finished, he said, you're about the most boring person I've ever done a polygraph for. So I, I hope I will be up to your challenge. Well, I, I, I will tell you this, the, uh, the intelligence community and the NSA polygraphers have nothing on the, on the, the, the power of, this, of the no password required podcast uh, polygraph. Here it is. First question, question number one. What is the most amazing thing you have ever seen? What's the most amazing thing you have ever seen? Birth of my first daughter. Absolutely fantastic. Well, there you go. All right, then. That's, I mean, that's a pretty, you know, for a guy who's been around the world, seen a lot, that's, that's a pretty telling statement that, uh, you know, that the, you know, welcome in your new kid, your, your first kid into the world. She is a, a doctor, medical doctor. She's a forensic pathologist. And uh, she does all the autopsies in the Charleston, South Carolina region of all suspected or wrongful deaths. Wow. So, uh, amazing a little thing came into this world, and she's cut quite a, a path for herself as she is the medical examiner for the entire region and uh, state employee. <laughs> she's not rich, but she's made a huge contribution. So, yeah, that was uh, the most significant thing I ever observed. All right, here we go. Number two, the second question. This is a Jack Clabby request. So here it is. Which meal gives you comfort? Which meal is your go-to comfort meal? Breakfast. Always been a breakfast eater. And uh, the thing I like the most is cereal. Really? Cereal? What that now when we say cereal, you get a lot of I don't you you, you get a lot of strange looks for it. and for those of that in the audio realm, uh, Jack was cheering because um, he voted for breakfast. Now Rex has given me the the Harry Abbey. He was he was gonna he was a bagel. He he had uh, he had his bet on a bagel. But cereal? What uh, what kind of cereal? Uh, granola with blueberries and strawberries, and I add some pumpkin seeds, some sunflower seeds, and a few other things that my sweetheart puts in there. But it is great. I can do that, and I don't have to eat again until twenty four hours later. Are- and we have a coffee with that or orange juice? No, no coffee, no orange juice, just my uh, cereal with milk. Uh, but I will, uh, since I can often do it in the morning and wait 24 hours, I do tend to have a beer in the evening just to hide me over. Yeah, you've mentioned the beer before we've had this discussion. Um, if I had to put it this way, I'm going gonna, gonna to tighten this up a little bit. And that we'll substitute this in for for another one. It's your favorite cheap beer, and by cheap I mean it has to be a none of this craft stuff. Your favorite cheap beer. Ooh, that's hard, Ernie. I don't drink cheap beer. Oh, <laughs> somehow I find it hard to believe that in the Mekong Delta they had uh, they had craft brews. No, in the Mekong Delta, they had something from Australia, and they put formaldehyde in it, 
And of course, uh, yeah, thanks to Josephus Daniels, there's no alcohol allowed <laughs> on the U.S. Navy ship. And I was on a ship, 724, but we had pontoons. So twice in a year, we could go on the pontoon for a beer party. And so I went down the pontoon. These pontoons are moored, so we get the Army on and off. And we stored the ammunition and so on. I think back on it, it's kind of crazy. But anyway, down the pontoon, <laughs> walking around, and I drank two Australian beers with formaldehyde. I had the world's biggest headache for like three days. So I decided back then, no more cheap beer and no more formaldehyde. Oh, that's probably a <laughs> no more formaldehyde. Words to live by. The cheapest beer I drink is um, made by a company called Sweetwater in Atlanta, Georgia. And the the name of the beer is High, H-I-G-H, Light, L-I-G-H-B. It is a, a pale ale. Actually, it's an India pale ale, low in alcohol and carbohydrates. And it's not expensive. So I would recommend, of course, the youngsters listen to this will have to wait till they're 21 of course but i would recommend Sweetwater high light beer is the beer choice I, that that to me is that that it gives you that ipa flavor but some of those ipas now are like eight nine ten percent alcohol and so i like what and, some of these brewers are doing with the lower alcohol but you still get that big flavor yeah i like the flavor and i don't like the alcohol and so most IPAs now they do double IPA triple I can't do that I like a I learned to drink good beer in England uh, and they serve pale ale and being McConnell I'm Irish so I went to Ireland and found they do a cream ale so I became a ale fan I prefer ale over lager and I like a little taste uh, not overly hoppy all right we know about the Next beer question. here we go Here's another. This is going to be a, a maybe get a little, um, little, little deeper because we've you've mentioned before we've heard that uh, there's if there's one thing that you're not good at, it's retirement because you're on what is this your fifth one? Um, yeah, my my kids remind me that uh, at least twice a month. So besides retiring, what is something that you were you wish you were better at? Faster reader. A faster reader. I love uh, history and documentaries and historical accounts. And so I want to know more about the history of the world because it informs me in thinking about the future and how to address future problems. So I've always been amazed that uh, some of the political leaders I've been around read at five, 6,000 words a minute. I, I've actually tried to read 5,000 words a minute, and I did. But an hour after I read it, I had no idea what, read, what I had read. So I'm more of a plotter. I go back and I, I read. I'm a meticulous reader. When I was a young analyst, if I read it, I had it. Now that I'm older, I'm having more senior moments. So even, I can read it couple times. And I find I, I'm still searching for the exact word, but I'm trying to say something. So and age is a terrible thing. Uh, <laughs> so if 
I could read faster, I could get more done. That's what I would uh, like to be able to do. All right. Okay. And now here's one. This is, uh, I've been authorized to kind of go off book. So I've, I've come up with this one. Which one of these is better? Which is better? NCIS or Magnum PI? Uh, NCIS, no question. Really? Most popular show <laughs> on television. Absolutely. Uh, I, I actually went back to watch some old episodes of Magnum PI. And you know, the story doesn't hang together. I love Tom Selleck, and he tells a nice story, but it the logic doesn't stick. In NCIS, uh, the Gibbs, uh, it has to fit that you go from one event to the other. So I have, I have become, now remember now, I've served overseas for a better part of my career. I missed all of the television. I, I didn't even know who Seinfeld was at one point. <laughs> And so once I uh, retired the third time, I got a Netflix subscription. And then I found out I needed a Prime subscription. And then I needed a BritBox subscription. And now I'm trying to figure out what the next three or four prescriptions I need. But I have watched every episode of NCIS from the beginning to the most recent episode played about a week ago. NCIS, no question. <laughs> well, I will highlight uh, that the one of the lead characters is uh, is a Marine gunnery sergeant. So you know that's a, that's a tip of the hat, you know, to the Marines over the Navy SEALs with uh, Magnum PI. So I, I'm, I'm taking that as a win. <laughs> well, everybody needs a good Marine gunnery sergeant to do the work. Well, Admiral McConnell, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Uh, one final question. One final question is, if you could convince our listeners to do one thing to make the cybersecurity world a little, little better, uh, what would that be? Believe that the threat is as significant as it is and shape your behavior and your life and your focus in a way that adequately addresses the threat. People do not understand that their very identity, their family, their state, their holdings, all are at risk. And when I, when I look at what youngsters have done with regard to being online and posting everything about themselves and so on, um, they make themselves terribly vulnerable. So understand that the, uh, the ability of a criminal or a foreign adversary to do terrible things to you personally, uh, to your business, to you, uh, your family, your, your nation, is uh, critical. So understand that and conduct yourself, your education, your awareness, your engagement, dialogue with politicians, your, your votes in your activities so you can make the nation as safe and secure in cyber and cybersecurity as we are physically secure. All right. That's some, some weighty advice, sir. And thank you very much. And so for our listeners out there, stay tuned. Coming up next, we're going to have Technolog with Pablo Torres. So stick around.
All good things must come to an end, but we're not there yet. Welcome to the Technologue with Pablo Torres. Welcome to Technologue. I'm your host, Pablo Torres. Today, we are going to discuss the importance of cloud vulnerability evolution, specifically seen within the growth of endpoint protection in today's infrastructures. The cybersecurity industry should come with a glossary to cover all the acronyms it uses. Today, we're taking a closer look at the three big ones, MDR, XDR, and EDR. What do these three acronyms mean exactly? The short answer is easy, easy enough. MDR refers to managed detection and response. XDR refers to extended detection and response. And EDR refers to endpoint detection and response. Together, the three, MDR, XDR, and EDR, share a lot of DNA. But the way that we approach security with them can vary wildly. Let's take a closer look at these three solutions to better understand their capabilities and potential benefits. So pa Pablo, EDRs, EDR is the one that I hear most from my perch working with companies. What is, as a starting point, like what is endpoint detection and response? Definitely, Jack. So EDR focuses on securing endpoint devices, which is any device which connects to and from a network. So let's think the internet of things. And EDR is going to be placed on the endpoint so it can go ahead and detect any sort of anomalies within the network. Um, EDR can also incorporate signature-based detection to defend against what's known uh, as, as threats. Um, but it sets, itself, it sets itself apart with a greater focus on active monitoring. This makes EDR better suited for detecting and identifying unknown threats, such as advanced persistent threats. And like of the things that these different solutions do, what does EDR do best? Yeah, definitely. So uh, what does EDR do best? Uh, EDR offers visibility into the state of your endpoints. And since 70% of all breaches start with endpoints, this approach is highly valuable for security professionals. However, the narrow focus of endpoint telemetry alone limits the amount of data available for analysis. In isolation from other sources, abnormal endpoint activity uh, can sometimes paint an incomplete picture. All right, so then to pivot from that, so what is extended detection and response, the XDR um, acronym? We're taking it a whole nother level here. So we're, we're gonna go ahead and, and ascend a little bit in the overall detection response space. Um, XDR's origins come from the fact that looking through a single lens at an organization's infrastructure simply doesn't provide the necessary coverage. XDR is often um, offered as a software as a service, a SaaS, uh, making it easier for businesses to access this technology. All right, so what are the things that um, XDR, what's like the main benefits of XDR? Yeah, yeah. The, the main benefit of XDR, um, it provides a range of benefits um, for organizations such as improved detection and response, centralized user interface, automated analytics, and lowers total cost of ownership. Um, simply put, XDR solutions can simplify security tool sets, often helping organizations find efficiencies and uh, maximize their resources. All right, so we've talked about EDR and XDR. What is MDR, this managed detection and response? Yep. Uh, MDR is not a specific technology, but a managed service that packages the benefits of EDR and or XDR into a convenient offering, um, helping offload some of the challenges of hiring skilled cybersecurity professionals. Right, and what, you know, what's the benefit of that, of, some of, the, of this MDR? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, so the biggest benefit with that, uh, one, one of the, the big ones that I really like to put uh, notice on is that it, it, it 
it helps offload some of the challenges of hiring these cybersecurity professionals. But the biggest benefit of MDR is the peace of mind that it offers businesses. As a managed service, MDR frees up time for IT and security teams to focus on strategic initiatives that support the business goals. All right, so then what should our listeners who are looking at these three options or these, these three parallel things, what should they look for in a cybersecurity solution? Um, there's so many things to look for in a cybersecurity solution, and it's not going to be one size fits all. Um, but but just some, some basic bullet points. Um, I'm, I have to say, you're not going to find the perfect solution in an acronym. So no acronym that a vendor presents you with is going to solve all of your problems and help you sleep better at night. Um, focus on the outcomes that you need for your business. Uh, and focus on the extent of coverage each solution provides along with the expertise, qualifications, and services offered. Um, protection that extends across every aspect of your IT infrastructure is crucial, but uh, having, having peace of mind with the proper vendors that, that are gonna help you with the right acronyms to find the coverage that you need is, is gonna be more sufficient than having expertise and qualifications that are offered by all these different certificates and organizations. All right. And that brings us to the end of our program. Thank you again for joining us. First and foremost, I have to say thank you to my co-hosts, Jack Clabby and Pablo Torres. I'd also like to say a special thank you to our guest, Vice Admiral Mike McConnell, a man whose life inspired most, if not all, the entire NCIS television show series. So that said, please... Please make sure to remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the No Password Required podcast. You can find us on social media at No Password Pod and send your questions or comments to info at nopasswordpodcast.com. And if you'd like some show swag, just ask and we'll hook you up. I'm Ernie Faresso. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required podcast. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. A special thanks goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields and Second Watch. If you would like to learn more about the show, visit our website at cyberflorida.org pod. And if you still need more show content, check out our social media at NoPasswordPod.